Matthew chapter 10, if you have your Bible, beginning in verse 16, we read, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour that you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In chapter 10, Jesus gives instructions to three kinds of disciples, each living at a pivotal moment, at a critical time. One is the past apostles in their short-term mission to Israel in verses 1 through 15. But now Jesus seems to address Future disciples living during the time that some people call the great tribulation in verses 16 through 23. And what would cause me to even suggest that or come to the conclusion of that? And the statement, of course, is found in verse 23 that we just read. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes uh, an, an allusion to his second coming. The chapter begins with the former apostles in verses 1 through 15, continues with future disciples in verses 16 through 23, and then ends with faithful disciples living throughout the church age or church history in verses 24 through 42. In the past, and the present, and even in the future, the enemies of God will oppose the message of Christ and the messengers of Christ. Remember what we've already learned in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called his apostles to himself. Remember, he sent them from himself with a message that he himself gave with the promise of power. But now he talks about persecution. And for the thoughtful person, they should ask right away, well, look, if you've called us to yourself and you're sending us from yourself and you're giving a message that you want us to give and you're giving us power, then why won't you make this pain go away? It's possible that the persecution and the suffering, you have the power to make sure that the persecution and the suffering never happen. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. Apparently, the persecution and the suffering is a part of his plan. It might involve maturation and growth and maturity, just like I alluded to you earlier when the coach sent me out to the field and he goes, make no mistake about it, there's 11 guys out there who are going to try to hurt, hurt you. But be of good cheer. <laughs> if you can get past them to the end, everybody's going to wave and cheer. It was simply a game for the in part, amusement of the people who are watching, but make no mistake about it, for the, for the challenge of the people who are playing the game. The Spirit of God will strengthen you and embolden you. Jesus also promises that even in the midst of challenge and difficulty, you're going to be given just the right words at just the right time in verses 19 through 20. You're to exercise wisdom and watchfulness in verses 16 and 17. Faith and fearlessness in verses 18 through 21. Endurance and escape in verses 22 through 23. So look again in verse 16. We exercise wisdom and watchfulness. Jesus says, behold. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When the Lord says, behold, it's an interesting word in the original language. It means look hard and keep looking in the tents. I need you to be on the watch. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this isn't all that heartening because this is like being a chicken at a Chick-fil-A convention where you go, I'm sending you out as a chicken to a bunch of people who want to eat chicken. Again, remember, Jesus promised great power in verses 1 through 15. Now he promises us great persecution. Imagine that you're Jesus and you're the disciples or the apostles and you get together and you go, okay, on three we're going to break. Oh, before we break. Let's pick a mascot. Let's have a team mascot. By the way, in high school or college, did you have a, a mascot? Some of you were called the lions or the bears or the panthers or the eagles. Schools pick strong, powerful, agile animals or heroes from myth or legend. How many schools pick sheep? None, yeah. You go, okay, so Jesus goes, okay, on three. We're going to be called the sheep. And the, the apostles go, what? This is, this is probably not a good idea. What are you saying? We're to be sheep sent to evangelize wolves. Sheep are lame. Sheep are dependent. Sheep are helpless and needy. And by the way, I don't know if you know a whole lot about sheep, but sheep can be easily frightened and they can be stampeded for almost any reason. They often panic at harmless things or, and they're, they're oblivious to things that are really, really dangerous. If you've noticed, sheep don't have fangs or claws and their only defense is to run. And they're not even very good at that. Philip Keller in his book, A Shepherd Looks at 
The 23rd Psalm relates his experience as a, as a rancher and a shepherd in Canada. He writes that sheep have no clue what to eat. They'll eat anything. A shepherd has to guard their diet. They're vulnerable to disease and infection, so the shepherd has to constantly check them. They have to be examined for lacerations and wounds and abrasions because insects and parasites view them as targets. Flies buzzing around their eyes, he says, and ears have been known to terrify sheep, causing them to bang their heads against trees and rocks. Sometimes flies will lay eggs in their eyes and cause them to go blind. Pregnant ewes will lose lambs from running themselves into utter exhaustion. Sheep are easy and delicious targets to predators. And wolves love to eat sheep. People understand the nature of sheep. People understand the danger of wolves. The shepherd's task was to keep them alive and keep them healthy and keep them content. In the ancient world, shepherds were often hirelings. And so if you were hired to take care of other people's sheep at the first sign of danger, if things looked like they were going to go bad quickly, a lot of people would say, I'm not going to die for some sheep. And away they would go. And so this is why it's very, very different when a person says, God called me. Remember what's happening in the text. Jesus calls them to himself, sends them from himself with a message that comes from himself. They're not hired. They're called. They are equipped and empowered. And so when Jesus basically points this out, he understands the challenge in front of them. And so again, I need you to understand something. Jesus calls them. Jesus sends them. And so here's how the danger's magnified. The wolves aren't just coming. Jesus is sending you to the wolves. And you might be thinking, what are you saying? You're marching into territory. Jesus is painting a picture of rejection and persecution by a God-hating population. And so you come to Christ, you experience his love, you experience his grace, you experience his mercy. And Jesus invites you to tell your husband, tell your wife, tell your children, tell your neighbor, tell, tell your family, tell your friends. And that some of you will be rejected. And the message won't always be welcome. Some people believe that if they come to Christ... And they walk with Christ. And they serve Christ. That they'll never suffer pain. That they'll never experience hardship or ridicule or opposition. Can you imagine any coach in his right mind telling the person who has to run the football back, oh, by the way, you'll never get hit. No one will ever try to hurt you. When the object of the game is for you to advance the ball and the object of the opposition is to keep you from doing it. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
that the goal of the opposition is to keep you from sharing that love, from, from sharing that grace, from experiencing and relating that, those mercies. Jesus did not escape persecution and opposition. Neither would they. Neither will you. In John 15, 18, we read Jesus' words. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first before it hated you. Jesus didn't escape the opposition or the persecution. And so, some of you are already upset. Some of you have already experienced setbacks, hardship, suffering. Some of you have already experienced the painful opposition that comes from people who don't understand what you've done or why you've done it. For some reason, you miss the message. You mean if I'm faithful? You mean if I'm sacrificed? You mean if I go to Jesus? You mean if I listen to his message? You mean if I share it with others, I might experience some pain? Jesus promises his power. Jesus promises his presence. Jesus promises his love. Jesus promises his wisdom. So what does it mean? Was it, what does it mean to be wise as serpents? The context seems to be in the presence of opposition and, and persecution, we exercise wisdom. In the ancient world, the snake had a number of different representations, if you will. Wolves are harmful, we know that. Sheep are harmless, we know that. So what does it mean to be wise as a serpent? I don't know if any of you have ever had any experience with snakes. <laughs> but snakes, when they're threatened, they have an almost uncanny ability to get away quickly and to find safety as fast as they can. And so that's the idea. The context seems to be in the presence of opposition and persecution... We exercise wisdom. We avoid persecution without caving into cowardice. That's the idea. When England was facing its darkest days against Hitler, Churchill told his fellow Englishmen, all I have to offer you is blood and sweat and tears. That doesn't sound all that inspirational. What, what are you saying? Yeah, I have, this is going to take blood and sweat and tears. Even human leaders know it doesn't make sense to go to war under false pretenses. Many people have died in hopeless battles. That is, if their only hope is winning. There's a battle that has to be waged because it's right. And Jesus is never coy about the danger or the demands of discipleship. 
The apostles never hedged on what it meant to follow Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul told Timothy, Yes, 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 all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so the person who says, I don't desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, then the chances are, you won't suffer persecution or you'll have limited persecution. The point, opposition and persecution shouldn't surprise you. I just want you to think about this just for a moment. Why should all of the promises of Jesus be true except this one? We're to be wise as serpents. Again, clever, quick, quiet, clever, quick, quiet. We find a place to hide until the danger passes. The passage doesn't say be like a serpent in the sense of bite everybody who comes along. That's not what the passage means. Again, in the ancient world, serpents were often, like I said, a symbol for wisdom. I read an interesting story this week of a 25-foot boa constrictor that was found in the basement of an Orlando home. I thought, how interesting. The people in the home knew it was down there. Do you know how they knew it was down there? Because they found evidence of shed skins. Can you imagine? And they know how big it is because of how big the skin that it left. A 25-foot snake that manages to hide in the nooks and the crevices of your basement. Think how handicapped snakes are. They don't have arms. They don't have legs. And still they manage to travel. You might feel disadvantaged as well. You might think that you don't have the necessary equipment to deal with what Jesus is asking you to deal with. But it's not true. Jesus wants you to be wise, clever, harmless. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4 verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. We're to say the right thing. That's what he means. Say the right thing at the right time to the right person. You'll remember that when the religious leaders sought to trap Jesus in his speech to make a statement of opposition either for or against paying taxes to Caesar that Jesus famously said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. You should give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And you should give to God the things that belong to God. It's neither brave nor wise to alienate and aggravate governments, leaders, families. And so doves are gentle birds. Remember what it says? I'm sending you in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as servants. Be harmless or gentle as doves. By the way, doves are sort of the sheep of the bird kingdom. They're often symbolized by innocence and purity and peace. Jesus is in effect saying, that's who we are. 
we are to be marked by gentleness, innocence, purity, peace, commitment to the truth. I know that this might not be the mascot you would have picked for yourself. Again, I was thinking about being a pastor and I read about the qualifications of a good pastor. Someone wrote, a good pastor has to have the strength of an ox, the tenacity of a bulldog, the daring of a lion, the wisdom of an owl, the harmlessness of a dove, the industry of a beaver, the gentleness of sheep, the versatility of a chameleon, the vision of an eagle, the hide of a rhinoceros. Yes, yes, and yes again. The perspective of a giraffe, the endurance of a camel, the bounce of a kangaroo, the stomach of a horse, the disposition of an angel, the loyalty of an apostle, the faithfulness of a prophet, the tenderness of a shepherd, the fervency of an evangelist, the devotion of a mother, and still, still, still not everybody's going to be happy. I think that that's true. That no matter how hard you try, and that no matter how hard you work, there are going to be people who are going to be disappointed. But Jesus is making it abundantly clear of what his expectation really is. He says in verse 17, but beware of men for they'll deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Note what it says at the beginning of verse 17, but beware of men. By the way, could you read that in any translation to mean trust human nature? It can't mean that. It can't mean that. Does it say believe in the inherent goodness of all people? That's not what it's saying. Jesus, when he says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. He is not just simply suggesting, but he is maintaining that people will oppose you. Some of them will try to hurt you. Some of them will persecute you. Paul rightly says, look, we struggle. Not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities Paul made it abundantly clear that the human beings who are in direct opposition to what we are doing and saying are motivated by supernatural sources. We struggle against Satan. We struggle against spiritual forces of darkness. But we also know that Satan will, will and does use people. Satan can and will use people to oppose the plan of God and the gospel of the Lord. Christians are a threat. How else do you explain a baker receiving a $150,000 fine for refusing to bake a homosexual wedding cake, but a sexual predator in South Carolina convicted of molesting a child receives four months in jail and a $4,000 fine. How do you explain that? 
The only way that you can explain that is that we live in a world that is so corrupt and so disgusting and so filled with misplaced priorities that love and conscience and goodness is misinterpreted by the popular culture. When you live in a government that asks you to quit clinging to your Bible. But they refuse to finish the sentence. Stop clinging to your Bible. Well, what do you want me to cling to? I want you to cling to me and my foolish ideas and foolish agenda. Tell me exactly what it is that you're asking me to do. You're, I'm asking you to trust that I will have the solution to the problems that you face. And by the way, do they? Are they the answer to the deep difficulties that you experience in your life? Particularly if the real problem is sin and the real problem is darkness and the real problem is wickedness? Do they actually offer you a solution to the problem of sin and the hope of life? We're to share Christ. The purpose of Jesus' warning isn't to frighten you. And it isn't to make you paranoid. And it isn't to make you suspicious of all unbelievers. The purpose of what Jesus is doing is to simply remind people that the moment that you begin to disseminate a message of love and of hope and of forgiveness and of salvation, that the world under most circumstances aren't going to receive that message. Satan isn't shy about enlisting unbelievers to criticize you and mock you and laugh at you and if need be, detain you, arrest you and deprive you of your freedom. You might be hurt. You might be beaten. You might be imprisoned. You might be killed. Fortunately, most of you will never experience that. But it's not true in the rest of the Christian world. It's not true in North Korea where you can go to jail and have all of your property seized if you simply own a Bible. It's not true in Saudi Arabia. It's not true in parts of India and China. The courts and the synagogues refer to the places where decisions were made by the, by the Jewish leaders. Every little town and every little village had a synagogue where legal disputes were settled. People would gather together. Jews could accuse and try and convict and punish, read scourge, offenders. A Jewish person accused of breaking Jewish law would be taken before a tribunal of judges. They would receive a sentence and a verdict. And usually that sentence meant 40 lashes minus one for mercy. In other words, they would beat you with a rod or they would beat you with a stick and they would withhold one of the stripes. Paul writes that he received this three different times in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24. By the way, you may not understand what went on in that culture. When you went before a judge and you were found guilty and then the punishment was meted out, the rest of the village would sing songs or read scriptures while the punishment was being executed. And that's exactly 
what would happen to many of these in the short term and most certainly in the long term. And so in verse 18, look what Jesus says. He says, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So what do we do? We're going to receive opposition from the religious establishment. We're going to receive opposition from the government. By the way, he's saying, in our journeys, we'll be brought before powerful and influential people. In this instance, the governors are a reference to the Roman governors, like Pontius Pilate and later Felix and Festus, that's spoken of in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Kings would include the two Agrippas and Herod and Antipas. And the Roman emperors would include people like Caligula and Claudius and Nero. But you remember, you will be brought. But remember from where we've been sent in verse 16. We've been sent from Jesus with a message from Jesus so that even in opposition and persecution, we're going to be full of faith and confidence knowing that we're guided by God's sovereign plan filled with God's Holy Spirit. If you forget that, then maybe you might cave under the pressure. It's easy when you're in pain to forget. What exactly? Where did I come from? Jesus called me to himself. Jesus sent me from himself. Jesus gave me the message. Jesus has given me the power. He's also warned me that this would come. Jesus makes it clear that the bitter animosity isn't directed towards the believer, but the believer's Lord. He says this, you're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake. You might be mistaken. You might think that your husband or your wife or your child or your boss or your government or the religious establishment is against you and you would be mistaken. They are not against you. They're against Jesus who sent you. And by the way, if they are against you because Jesus didn't send you, and if they are against you because whatever your message is isn't the message of, of Jesus, it's possible that they might be against you. Does it shock you or surprise you that if you're a jerk or an idiot, you might receive a little opposition? This isn't being a jerk or an idiot. This isn't holding up a sign with your misinterpretation of God's plan and God's purpose. This is an opportunity for leaders and governments to carefully consider Christ all over Again, you know, I've never met with a governor or a king because I was in trouble for obeying Jesus. But I've met with governors and presidents. I remember meeting with one particular president and I, I said to him, how are you? He goes, oh, well, I'm doing fine now. You know, I had a little bit of heart trouble, and I'm doing fine right now. I go, well, what are you doing to keep yourself busy now that you're not the president of the United States? And he said, well, I like to raise money for worthy causes. 
And I said, Mr. President, I'm sorry to hear about your heart attack. And I said, it could very well be that God has spared your life and given you a wonderful opportunity to make sure that you're right with him and that whatever unfinished business God has with you, that he can complete that business. Oh, thank you, thank you. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, you have really nice hair. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. What you need to know is that Jesus takes our persecution personally. That's why he's going to reiterate in verse 18 and again, later on in the text, for my sake. When you suffer, when you're persecuted, when you're doing it for Jesus' sake, what are you willing to endure for the sake of Jesus and for the cause of Christ? And so Jesus points out that the world hates Christians because they hate Christ. And when you identify with Jesus, you're placed in harm's way and you become a target of Satan's attention. And when you talk of Jesus and manifest his character, when you talk about Jesus and share his love, hell takes notice. When you do nothing for Jesus, when you say nothing about Jesus, when you produce nothing for Jesus, then the chances are you're going to be fine. John Wesley went three weeks without so much as a bad word or a rock being thrown at him. He got off his horse and he began to cry and pray and weep and he begged God to forgive his indifference and some men heard the evangelist praying and crying and weeping and they began to throw rocks at him and he cried out, thank you Jesus. Most of us aren't there yet. Most of us don't wonder why people remain silent. The point, the world will attack you when they see Jesus in you. The world will attack you when they see Jesus in you. The world will attack you when you speak the message of Jesus. And look what it says in verse 19. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it's going to be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Most of you wonderfully, blessedly, thankfully, have never been tortured, beaten, or imprisoned. Some of you may have been falsely accused. I had a person on my radio program who found himself in Iran, and he was charged with conspiracy. He was charged with spying against the Iranian government. And he was beaten brutally and repeatedly. So much so that he contemplated committing suicide in their custody. When you are beaten and when you are tortured and when you are imprisoned, This is not the time that you're usually at peace or worry-free. Our first reaction 
to accusation is typically to mount a defense, to affirm and proclaim our innocence and the innocence of Jesus Christ. We want to convince our accusers that they're wrong about us and that they're wrong about Christ. People are accused every day of wrongdoing. And around the world, Christians are placed in prison, deprived of their property, and their jobs taken away. The Lord Jesus gives the promise that when we face our accusers, even under the most severe of circumstances, the Holy Spirit will come to you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. The Holy Spirit will champion your cause. He will speak through us. And again, this isn't a proof text to be sloppy or or lazy in speech. And it's certainly not a proof text or an excuse to not prepare the sermon or to wing it. That's not the point of the passage. Some of the most dramatic and impacting statements that have ever been made in the history of the church and in the history of humanity have been Christians moments before their death or moments as they have to face their accusers. Donald Cargill was a bright star in the history of Scottish persecutions. He was condemned by the government and sentenced to the gallows. And when he came to the scaffold, Cargill said these moving words, although it was said that the drums were beating so loudly they were a Attempting to drown out his voice and they would pound louder and louder and as they pounded louder and louder his voice got louder and louder and he said now I am near to getting my crown which shall be sure for I bless the Lord and desire all of you to bless him that he hath brought me here and he makes me triumph over devils and of men and sin. They shall wound me no more. I forgive all men the wrongs that they've done to me and pray the Lord may forgive me all the wrongs that any of the elect have done against him. I pray that the sufferers may be kept from sin and help to know their duty. Farewell reading and preaching. Farewell praying and believing. Farewell wanderings and reproaches and sufferings. Welcome to joy unspeakable. Welcome to joy full of glory. You might be wondering if you could ever speak like that, especially when the times are difficult. But the Bible says that God will be with you, that Jesus will strengthen you, the Holy Spirit will empower you. In verse 20 it says, for it's not you who speak, it's the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And if that's true, then what will the message be? It must be the message, remember, that they've already seen. Remember what we've already said in the context of the passage. Jesus has called them to himself. Jesus has sent them from himself with a message that he himself has given to them. 
And what's the message that's been given to you? It is the message that God loves you. It is the message that God's willing to forgive you. That God, in his grace and his mercy, offers to you hope and grace. In verse 21, it says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. The persecution comes from the religious establishment. The persecution comes from the government and the authorities. But now it comes from the most painful source imaginable. The people you love the most. The people that you care about the most. The people who you live for and love. Sometimes we're cut off and betrayed by the people that we care the most about. But our call is to exercise faith. Sometimes the source of suffering is our own family. And the persecution can come from the ones that we love. Betrayal by government. Betrayal by the religious establishment. Seems almost bearable. Compared to family. And you'll note that Jesus doesn't focus on predictions of successful conversions. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, your brother will eventually get saved. Your father will eventually get saved. Your children will eventually get saved. It doesn't say that. But sometimes it's true. When the religious leaders drug Stephen outside the gate of the city and they placed their coats at the foot of a young rabbi named Saul, the experience never left him. And it changed him forever. We can have some hope that even in the midst of betrayal, a heart might change and might go in a different direction. So we endure And we escape. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. By the way, in verse 22 when it says the word all and you will be hated by all. Typically it's a word that's all inclusive. Here I think that it it doesn't mean, I don't think it means every single unbeliever will hate every single believer. The idea seems to be all people in general, the world in general, by and large, will not accept the message that you bring. Here when it says, but he who endures to the end will be saved. This isn't a reference to your soul. This isn't a reference that you're somehow saved by grace through faith plus being persecuted and killed. Ours is not a Muslim theology. We are not jihadi warriors longing for death in the hopes that that will merit us heaven. We don't believe that even for a minute. Here, I think what he is more likely saying is the promise of deliverance out of persecution in what sense? That the pain will one day go away, that the suffering will one day go away, and that the persecution will one day go away? The answer is yes. 
Just like Daniel's friends, when King Nebuchadnezzar threatened to throw them in the fire, and he said, don't you realize that I have the ability to make you live or make you die? And unless you do as I say, I'm going to throw you into that fiery pit. And they said, either way, we're not going to bow because we're going to be delivered. If our deliverance means experiencing the ultimate deliverance, and I suspect that that's what he has in mind here. So how effective is your ministry? Sometimes it can be measured by the severity or the intensity of the opposition that you received. And if there's never any opposition, then you have every right to examine your heart and ask yourself the question, when people see me, do they see Jesus? Do they see the love of Jesus? Do they hear the message of Jesus and the hope of Jesus? In the end, the disciples knew that they could do nothing and that Jesus could do everything. They're willing to face what Jesus faced. They're willing to love what Jesus loves. And they're certainly willing not to love their own life more than him. In the end, the disciples will huddle around Jesus and then they'll turn to Jesus for direction and for power, for security and for love. Jesus sent them out to face dangers. Some of us can only imagine. Paul speaks of beatings, imprisonments, deprivations, dangers, beasts, fanatical Jews, crazed pagans, shipwrecks, starvation. But then Paul declares the fact each and every time that Jesus called him, that Jesus sent him, that Jesus gave him the message to deliver. Because with opposition comes opportunity. With opposition comes the opportunity to change the world. And so in verse 23, when he says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you won't have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Lord reminds us that the persecution and the pain is going to come but it's okay to avoid the persecution as well. The disciples are given permission to run to a different place. So what does Jesus mean when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, you will have not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Is this a reference to the end of his earthly ministry? Or does this anticipate his second coming? Where does Jesus go after the speech? I'm going to give you a quick hint. Turn the page of your Bible to chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Jesus is going to go after giving the speech to teach and preach in their cities. In Luke's gospel, if we take it in chronological order, this is going to be a time where Jesus is going to very quickly make his way to the Mount of Transfiguration and he's going to be 
transformed in Matthew 16. Also, it's spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. There's another historical possibility. The mission of Jesus' disciples is cut short by the coming of Titus and Vespasian and the Roman armies in 66 to 70 AD. It could be that it's a reference again, and I think that it really is, to a time of the end. When a group of missionaries are going to return to this particular place and they're going to go to the cities and the villages offering exhortation and encouragement and shows up in the prophecy in Matthew 24, 13, which seems to apply to a future time of Jewish evangelism that takes place In a Jewish state. Could it mean. That evangelism will take place. Even during the time of the great tribulation. Right up until the time of the second coming of Christ. I kind of think that that's probably what this passage means. We're not to invite persecution or welcome persecution or or long for persecution. But we're not to provoke animosity and ridicule. It will come. You don't have to be a jerk to invite persecution. If you simply love the Lord Jesus and live your life as if that's true, it's going to happen. You know, years ago, there was a group of Japanese believers who were heckled and abused whenever they assembled to worship the Lord, and the persecution wouldn't shake their faith, but they continued to receive the persecution. And each time the Christians gathered, a mob would throw stones at them, and and, and they would just continue to faithfully gather together. And later, when a relative time of peace and sanity finally came to the community, many were one to Christ. And they returned to the spot where they had met so frequently. And they gathered up the stones that used to be thrown at them. And they built a little chapel out of those stones. And it became a place where they would worship the Lord and pray to the Lord. We don't always see the value, the meaning... Or the outcome of pain and persecution and suffering. We're all going to experience it. But we don't have to be discouraged. Because earth's sorrows were meant to be stepping stones on the road to sanctification. Indeed, the Bible says, we must go through much tribulation. To enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says. Come to me. And then he sends them out. With a message of hope. With the promise of power. With the expectation of persecution. But then he asks. Be wise. Be watchful. Grow your faith. Be faithful. Endure. And you will escape. 
when the coach sent me out, I could run the length of a football field in about 10 seconds. Most of the time, I got hit and I got hurt. But every once in a while, I made a miss. And every once in a while, I got to the end. Guess what? That was football. This is faith. You will get to the end. You will make it to the finish line. And all of heaven will rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we invite you to examine our hearts. Lord, we invite you to see if there's something in our life that's keeping us from loving you the way we should love you and expressing that love in a way that's meaningful and visible. And Lord, we pray for all of our brothers and sisters in Korea. Lord, we pray for our brother Saeed Abedini, in particular in Iran. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in East Africa. East India, in Saudi Arabia. Lord, we pray for the 130 million to 150 million Christians all over this planet who are experiencing untold trial, pain and suffering. And Lord, we thank you for their witness and we thank you for their love and we thank you for their courage and we thank you for their testimony as the world continues to watch and ask the question, is their faith real? And is their faith true? Is there a life worth living and dying for? Lord, we pray that the answer would become so apparent to so many people. We commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, and let's stand.